Hello, and welcome to Safe Dividend Investing, podcast number five. I am Ian Duncan MacDonald, author of Safer, Better Dividend Investing. Today, we're going to discuss alternative investments such as savings accounts, bonds, debentures, mutual funds, and exchange-traded funds. In the next podcast, we will discuss other alternative investments, home ownership, rental properties, REITs, collectibles, and preferred shares. Probably the first bank account you ever opened with a financial institution, perhaps as a child with your parents' help, was a savings account. I doubt if the word investment was applied to it at that time. It was simply a safe place where you would safely store your money with the added bonus that the bank paid you interest to keep it there. However, A savings account is an investment, and there are far more people with saving accounts than investment accounts with stock shares in them. As an investment vehicle, how does a savings account compare to an investment account holding dividends and stocks? First, despite the interest paid by a bank, you must accept that you are paying a fee to a bank to keep your money safe. Banks have been paying a minimal interest rate of less than one-half of 1% the last few years. This is at a time when inflation is close to 2%. Your money is then loaned by the bank to their overdraft customers at 8% interest and at 22% interest to those customers unable to pay off their monthly credit card balances. To further diminish the investment aspect of the meager interest paid on savings accounts, that interest is taxed at the full income tax rate. Compare that to a stock whose share price doubles. This gain costs the stock investor almost nothing when the stock is ever sold. If it ever sold, the capital gain is taxed at a lower rate than the full income tax rate. Furthermore, if that stock pays dividends, the dividends are taxed at a lower rate. On the positive side, you can quickly access the cash in your savings account. Nothing has to be sold before you get your hands on your cash. Of course, those who are risk adverse are quick to point out that stocks must be sold before you get cash and the stock prices can drop. Yes, you can lose money by investing in stocks. However, as I illustrate in my books and podcasts by carefully investing in 20 diverse, financially strong, high-dividend-paying stocks, you can consistently realize an average annual dividend income of 6% a year, plus expect to realize an average annual growth in your portfolio of 9%. 
one big positive for investors regarding savings accounts is that they give banks access to virtually free money that the bank can loan at high rates to generate generous profits, which result in generous dividends for shareholders like myself, plus show steady share price increases over the years. Bonds are another questionable place to park your money. Until recently, investment advisors would recommend that all investment portfolios have 40% of your investment money in bonds. What are bonds? Bonds are an inexpensive way for governments and corporations to borrow money. They are a loan paying a fixed interest rate at fixed intervals for a fixed number of years. At the end of the bond's term, you get back the original amount you loaned. Unfortunately, since bonds are not stocks, there is no chance for capital gain, nor is there a lower income tax benefit. A big benefit of bonds that is praised by bond sellers is that in a bankruptcy, bonds rank ahead of insolvent companies, unsecured creditors, and shareholders and realizing any distribution from the liquidation of the bankrupt company. While this is promoted as a major benefit, the reality is that there is rarely anything left for bondholders or anyone in a corporate bankruptcy. The banks, with their floating debentures on all assets, grab everything of value to cover their loss and there is rarely anything left after assets are sold at bargain prices. The bank's concern is only in covering their own loss. To acquire $50,000 worth of stocks as a self-directed investor can incur a one-time fee of less than $10. To acquire $50,000 worth of bonds is expensive by comparison. The bond must be bought and sold through a broker. You should expect to pay the broker thousands of dollars in commission to expedite the purchase and and thousands when you sell the bonds. Investment costs are important. Another drawback is unlike the enormous volume of current factual public information on stock prices, there is little information on bond prices. Thus, you're never quite sure if the price you're paying for a bond is a reasonable price or not. It is also difficult to confirm how risky your bond purchase is since the company issuing the bond pays the bond rating company to rate that bond. The misleading positive ratings of mortgage-backed securities by bond rating companies in 2008 and several multi-million dollar fines for conflicts of interest is just one example of bond rating unreliability. The current low interest rates paid by bonds also contribute to making them unattractive to investors. A typical bond return of 3% is hardly better than inflation. And when commissions to buy and sell them are added in, it is hard to see how they benefit you as an investment. Debentures. 
Investment advisors may also propose investing in debentures. They are almost identical to bonds, but unlike bonds, they are not secured by collateral or assets of the corporation. They are an unsecured loan. The borrower pays a specific interest rate for a fixed period. Unlike bonds, they do not have special rights in an insolvency. They are bought because the borrower's good credit reputation is such that the investor assumes they are good for the loan. However, some companies will issue these unsecured debentures because all their other assets are collateral secured. Thus, once again, no chance for capital gain and no security. The company will pay as little as they can in interest. Mutual funds. Investment advisors love to sell mutual funds. They will realize between 2% and 4% in management fees and commissions every year that your fund is under their control. Any gain on your mutual fund will also likely be eaten up by those fees and by inflation rate running at close to 2%. An investment advisor will always assure you that the mutual fund he proposes for your portfolio is going to greatly increase in value. He will show you how the fund has had good historical gains. Unfortunately, studies have shown that often if a mutual fund gains one year, it lessens the chances a gain will occur in the subsequent years. Past performance of mutual funds is no guarantee of a future gain. A significant number of mutual funds do not survive five years. In the year 2000, I lost $300,000 in a mutual fund in which my advisor had put my life savings. I realize now how naive I had been in investing in something that I could not thoroughly analyze. You have no control over what the fund manager may decide to invest in tomorrow. You are expected to blindly accept whatever they wish to do with your money. You are just along for the ride. If you do go to the trouble of looking at the shares invested in by the mutual fund, you will be looking at a historical record of what the fund was invested in at the time they filed their prospectus. The mutual fund will usually be invested in hundreds of companies. While diversification is good, the benefits of diversification diminish once you get beyond 20 companies. The greatest fear a fund manager has is if they, their fund had lower gain than a stock market average gain, if the normal stock average gain based on the results of thousands of companies is only 6%, the only way the fund manager feels they can ensure matching the index is to have hundreds of stocks in the fund to achieve at least the average. 
Like everyone else, fund managers cannot accurately predict future share prices. Usually, the larger the mutual fund, the poorer the results. You are paying 1% or 2% for the expertise of the fund manager. In reality, you're not going to get much, much better results than an index fund whose management fees are much lower because there is no fund manager picking stocks. They just invest in all the shares in an index. Mutual funds are such an important source of revenue for the industry that they build conditions into their sale to ensure they cover the upfront commissions and fees paid to those who sell them. Thus, if you sell some mutual funds within a year or two of buying them, expect to incur thousands of dollars in penalties. When you compare a mutual fund to a portfolio of 20 carefully chosen dividend stocks, you can see the benefits of 20 stocks. You can live off the regular monthly or quarterly dividends being paid instead of being forced to sell a piece of your mutual fund every year to give you enough income to live on. Each year, this sell-off would be shrinking the value of this asset. A carefully chosen dividend stock portfolio will continue to get larger year after year. You know exactly what you are invested in and why. You pay a negligible price once to acquire stock that you might hold for the rest of your life. Self-directed investing avoids what can easily add up to hundreds of thousands of dollars in mutual fund fees and commissions over the years. Exchange Traded Funds An ETF is a cheaper kind of mutual fund. You can buy them on the stock exchange the same way you can buy stocks. Just like a stock, every time you buy or sell an ETF, you could be incurring a commission fee. This also means that if buyers are not interested in the ETF, the price could drop and you could suffer a loss when you sell it. Beware if there are large spreads between the bid and the ask price of an ETF. In addition, there are management fees. You pay this charge every year, just like a mutual fund. While they are lower than mutual funds, perhaps 0.25% of the fund, they do add up. The reason their charges are lower is because the ETF fund manager invests in a fixed group of stocks that requires virtually no management analysis. If it is a fixed investment that does not change from one year to the next, why are you paying a charge every year? One reply I got back was a shrug and a comment that it was not much, only a quarter of 1%. So if I had $1 million in an ETF, that 0.25% would be working out to $2,500 
a year for doing nothing. In 10 years, that becomes $25,000. If you had invested $1 million in 20 carefully chosen good dividend stocks, which would cost you nothing for 10 years, you could expect a $1 million gain right from the investments of your dividends and capital gain. ETF investors should also be aware of ETF expense ratios. It is a percentage of the fund's total assets. It gets deducted every year to cover operating expenses. The higher the expense ratio paid, the lower is the return for an investor. Also, beware of how the ETF is distributing capital gains. It is preferable that they invest capital gains because distributing back to shareholders makes them the shareholder responsible for paying the capital gains tax. An ETF may buy every stock in a specific group. This group could include financially strong companies and financially weak companies. This leads to mediocre results. Sometimes, if the whole group falls, one strategy to protect the fund is to sell everything in it. They then speculate when to buy back in. Trying to time it right can be dangerous. To diminish such gyrations, some ETFs have wandered away from investing in just one group, which further waters down the results. In the next podcast, we will be discussing home ownership, owning rental properties, REITs, hedge funds, collectibles, and preferred shares. <music>